Good morning, Redemption Church. As always, it's a privilege to preach today, to bring this word. By a show of hands, raise your hand if you think um, you could talk through the story in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Um, if you feel familiar with that story, give me, give me a show of hands. Average familiarity? Okay, good. Um, some of you have been through that passage this week in our redemption groups as we've been going through the Abide series. So we have that reading card where we preview the sermon text. Um, that is a really healthy thing, I think, for um, our body. Um, for me, or for any of the preachers, Jason went through this last week, it's kind of an interesting thing, especially if you're in the Sornin group, because um, we talk through the text the night before preaching. So I joked last night that, you know, um, it'd be a long night of rewriting the sermon after our, after our discussion. So um, just a joke, uh, mostly. Um, so I'm excited to dig into this passage this morning, what is a popular or rather well-known story throughout Scripture where Jesus goes and he meets this woman um, at a well and has this conversation with her. Um, as you're turning there, we're going to go through that story almost verse by verse. So pull up, open your Bibles or your, um, your apps, however you are reading this morning, and we'll be moving through that um, together. <clears throat> As you're doing that, um, just a, a testimony. I grew up in a church with a really large Bible quizzing program. Most of you have probably not even heard of that or don't know what that is. That's okay. Um, but we um, memorized and then were quizzed on sections of Scripture. And so this passage for me, um, as Jason said a few weeks ago, God's Word is a deep well. There are things that you see as you return to Scripture that you have never seen before. Um, led there by people, um, led there by God's Spirit. Um, it is a, um, a deep, deep well. And so there are things that I saw in this text um, this week that I had never seen before. Um, even after memorizing this passage, you know, 10 years ago in high school and quoting it, um, the first couple chapters of John, hundreds of times, um, new things. God's Word is alive. That being said, I don't think there's anything this morning that I have to say that's original to me. So um, you can know that um, we're going through this with God's Spirit leading us. Before we jump into the text, let's pray. God, we come before you today grateful for your word, grateful that your spirit indwells those of us who are believers and expectant that you will continue your sanctifying work of showing us our sin and our lack of faith so that we can more fully depend on you and obey your commands. May you receive all the glory and praise this morning. We ask that our hearts be soft and moldable, our minds be free of distraction. Give us wills um, that are determined to release the lesser things that we look to for satisfaction and that you would give us grace to find satisfaction only in you. Satisfy us, please, God, with living water that only you can give, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, John 4, 1 through 26, 26 verses covering this dialogue between Jesus and this Samaritan, um, Samaritan woman. Two questions that we will ask today um, at the beginning, and then God willing, by the end of the message, we will have answers to these. The first question is, what exactly is living water. So if you've read through this, um, you hear Jesus offer this woman living water. What exactly is that? 
And question number two, what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? So this first section, I've kind of named these paragraphs, as you see them in your, in your text, um, three sections we're going to walk through. The first one I've named um, just the briefing because they're setting up context for this. John, um, the author of Gospel of John, has this advantage that he wrote this book um, decades after most of the other gospel accounts were written. So he's got this advantage of being able to look back and provide a little bit of unique, um, uniqueness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the only occurrence of this story in the scriptures. Um, the other gospel accounts don't have this one. And um, I think as you look at why John writes this, why it's important, um, we see that he also adds in textual commentary um, to help us as people who are unfamiliar with Jewish culture. He provides that so you can understand what's really going on in this text. So here's how he starts it off. I'm going to read the first six verses. Um, John 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So look in verse 2. There's this contextual note. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So I don't want to dwell too much there, but why does John add that? John begins um, noting that Jesus wasn't baptizing himself. And I think the observation is that Jesus's the great commission he gave his disciples he said to, as you're going, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. That was not a reactive thing that Jesus did at the end of his ministry when he was surprised that the mission of the church, that his success with the good news of the gospel, he wasn't surprised by that and then said, oh, I'm going to need some help, and so now I'm going to commission disciples to do this. From the beginning of, this, of his ministry, he was working and using people, ordinary people like you and I, um, these disciples, to baptize and to help him with his ministry. Why does that matter? In this text, I think it matters because, as if, without stealing from the, you know, Pat's sermon next week, as we're going to see, um, Jesus uses this woman who's a really unlikely character, unexpected. Jesus uses this woman to minister through her testimony to this entire village and to this region of Samaria. God is doing his work by his sovereign plan from the beginning of his ministry by using people like his disciples, this outcast woman, and we're going to meet, um, we're going to meet her and see her in today's text and realize that God, because he can use her, he can use even people like you and I, and that's really exciting. So moving on, verse 4 says, and he had to pass through Samaria. So this is not, um, not a geographic constraint. So Jesus is leaving Judea. It's in the south. He's got to go to Galilee. And in between, there's this area uh, called Samaria. There are roads around that, and it was common for religious people in, in those days to go around Samaria so that they didn't have to interact with these um, Samaritan people. 
because there was, there was an issue there. We're going to talk about that in a bit. Um, Jesus said, John records, Jesus had to go through Samaria. And as we look at the context, we know that that was not a geographic constraint, but it was a matter of his mission. So as we wrap up this first section, verse 6, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So here we are at noon. The sixth hour is from the beginning of the day, so it's noon, it's the middle of the day. Jesus has been walking for a while, and naturally he's tired, and we're about to see he is thirsty, and this wasn't coincidental at all. The glory of Christ's full humanity and full deity is on display. So imagine his uncorrupted intuition in conversations like he's about to have. He understands, he knows this woman's heart because he's God, yet he can sympathize with her burden, with her sin, with the broken world that she lives in. And he even gets tired and is able to relate. Section two, the opening dialogue. So verses 7 through 15, we begin. Jesus is sitting at the well resting. This woman walks up at a strange time of day to gather water. So Jesus, if you're familiar with the story, you expect this. If you're not familiar with the story, it's a little bit surprising. He, rather than withdrawing from her, he just engages her in conversation. Even though she's a woman who, in that culture, um, you didn't, you didn't, she was a, a lesser class. Even though she's a woman, and even though she's a Samaritan, and even though it seems that they are all alone, and she's apparently a social outcast, which is really the only reasonable explanation for her gathering water in the middle of the day. And Jesus is unconcerned with his holiness and his perfection, or even his reputation being impacted by her status, and he engages with her. He asks her for a drink, which springs them into this life-changing dialogue. And later in this chapter, it changes the lives of many people in that region. Ironically, I chuckled at this this week as I was preparing. She doesn't ever give him the drink that he asked for. As you read, as you read the chapter, like, he's thirsty the whole time. So, if I get thirsty, I have to kind of like think of that before I reach down and take a sip of my water. Um, she responds with surprise when he says, give me a drink. She highlights their ethnic diversity. The Samaritan woman said to him, look at verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then in parentheses, maybe in your, in your translation, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's a contextual note we think that John put in there. Most likely... John has added that so that we can understand, oh, yeah, that's right, there's this tension between Jews and Samaritans. So for modern readers, let's do a quick historical review of this conflict between um, the Jews and the Samaritans. I won't take a long time because I know that um, probably not all of you love history as much as um, nerds like me, but let's go back. If we go back to the Old Testament, we read, we see that after, so you had King David, then his son Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom of Israel is split into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel, and those are conquered by Assyria and Babylon about 400 years after David. When the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where Jerusalem is located, when that kingdom falls, 
the people are deported away from their homeland. When they eventually return, they find this region of Samaria where the people, the Jewish people that were there, had intermarried with others, outsiders, um, and then they had, like, corrupted the old Jewish religion in some significant ways. They only held to the first five books of the Old Testament. That's, that was their canon, instead of all the Psalms, the prophets. Um, and then there's this really interesting point of contention around the location of worship. They worshiped, they had this temple built on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, this mountaintop, um, and they didn't worship in Jerusalem. So eventually, a couple hundred years after that, the Jews come in and they destroy this um, you know, unright, this wrong temple on Mount Gerizim. So they tear it down. That's about a hundred and say 120 years before, it's not really clear, 120 years before Jesus came. So there's two temples because God's people were unfaithful. They get conquered, which the prophets had, had told them this is what's going to happen. And um, the Jews come in, they destroy this temple, and then that ensures this mutual hatred between these two people groups. So here we have Jesus walks into this region. There's some pretty, there's some unwritten rules that we don't, we don't, um, we don't mix with these people. They're not our kind. So here we have the Hatfields and the McCoys, and Jesus dares to speak to this Samaritan woman, but not just talk with her. He asks her to give him a drink, and she responds appropriately. How dare you ask me for a drink? You're one of them. You're a Jew. And he responds, if you knew, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So he says, if you had asked me for a drink, I would have given you a drink. I would have given you living water. In these times, living water was possibly an idiom for running water like a river or stream or spring, but well water was stagnant. It was simply water that was accessed by di digging deep enough to get below the surface of that water, to get below the water table in that region. So living water, she might perceive that as, oh, he's talking about uh, a superior type of flowing water. She's still not understanding what he's offering. And here's where it starts to be clear that this isn't about water, as we said in the opening paragraphs. It was never about literal, literal water. Something else is going on, and it's far more wonderful than um, ancient water technology or even the sorting out of these historic conflicts. So she responds to that, verse, verse 11 and 12. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So as we read this narrative, there's a part of us that sees her confusion as she talks. She's speaking unknowingly with Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Have you ever felt the tension of listening to two people discuss something and you know that like one of them is just, they're thinking about two totally different things? There's just this impasse. And if possible, that happens, I think, a lot of times at work, maybe in family relationships, um, you kind of want to jump in and help, help the one person who's not understanding. And I feel this tension here. I think I want to jump in and be like, no, 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 stop asking about water. He's not talking about water, water. He's talking about eternal salvation. And yes, of course, he's better than the patriarch Jacob. If Jacob were here now, he'd be, he'd be kissing his feet, and you're arguing with him. Um, 
But at the same time, I know that if I were there, I would just confuse it even more because what Jesus is doing here is he's pulling out from her something more than just his offering of eternal life. He's showing her where she's actually quenching her thirst. John 4, 13 and 14, he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So given this promise, I think she intends on calling his bet. I don't think her eyes are open yet. She's still surprised at the nature of this conversation with this random Jew. And if he's going to make all these statements, it's time for him to prove it. So she responds, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And she reveals her motive to him, which he already knew. She's just looking for this special water that alleviates her temporal need of thirst and this need to walk to the well every day. So in this last paragraph, section three, the debate and a formal introduction. It's our final paragraph in this text this morning. Jesus confronts her request not by showing her that he can create the, create, that he created the world and that he can create um, a fountain right there. He doesn't do some major sign, but he asks her to do one thing. He says, go, call your husband and come here. It feels like a change of subject. The woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And here it is. This is what grabbed me this week. Jesus is not just bringing up her sin like this hammer to prove to her that she's guilty. He's not going to bludgeon her with that. She already knows she's a sinner. She's ashamed to go to the well in the morning or in the evening with the other women in her area. Her social status is not a secret to her. And this is the same with us. I know I'm a sinner. You know that you are sinners. Our failures are ever before us. And that is a human condition. And if we ever forget, we are surrounded by other sinners who are stereotypically capable and willing to point out our failures to us. So what Jesus shows her is not as simple as just pointing out that she's a sinner under condemnation, because she already knows that. He points out that she is quenching her thirst with the serial relationships and adultery. She is thirsty for something more than water, and she's drinking at the faucet of sex and marriages, and she doesn't need to be delivered from a morning walk to the well every day, but she needs satisfaction that can only be found in the living water that Jesus gives. So Jesus responds to her admission that she doesn't have a husband by telling her that he knows everything about her. To which she responds, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And so again, we're watching this tension here, and we can't, she can't hear us, and we're saying, like, you're getting warmer, all right? You're getting closer. And just as her eyes are starting to open, she pivots away from this uncomfortable but all-important topic of her need for living water, and she goes to this obscure ancient debate, which mountain is best? So look at verse 20, 
through 26. She says, I perceive you're a prophet, and, switch, and then changes the subject. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. She's talking about the patriarchs. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So, verse 20, she's not just making a statement. She's making an argument. She's trying to bring up this theological conflict between Jews and Samaritans. The patriarchs worshipped here, but you guys think that Jerusalem is the right place to worship. And Jesus responds to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus tells her, this whole debate around which mountain is best, which mountain is the correct place for worship, isn't even the right question. Then he explains that very soon, true worship won't be geographically influenced, but it will be identified by two categories, spirit and truth. The woman said to him, Here's how she responds to that. I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. So this is the equivalent of her saying, well, I guess we'll just agree to disagree. You know, She's probably not very educated, and she's arguing with this prophet, and then he explains this to her, and she just says, well, I guess we'll just agree to disagree. When the Messiah comes, he can straighten it all out. And what does he say? Verse 26. I who speak to you am he. After all of that back and forth, he tells her he is the Messiah. And you can imagine as she thinks back over this conversation she's just had, as she remembers the Messiah. God become man, wearied as a human, and asking her of all people for a drink. The Messiah not needing a bucket to draw water with because he is the source of living water. The Messiah, yes, greater than our father Jacob. Messiah, the object of true spiritual worship. And then the story continues, but um, I got a gag order from Pat, so he's going to preach on that next week. All right? And we see how she responds to that and how her witness and her testimony goes out into this region. So with the time we have left, let's wrap up. We had two questions at the beginning. What is living water and what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? So what exactly is living water? If you've been um, participating in the seek and see activity that we do as we um, read scripture and understand it, um, you might guess that one of the first things we do is say, is this living water? Is this a new idea? Well, let's go back to the prophet Jeremiah. This prophet, Jeremiah, back in the Old Testament that um, the Samaritans, as you remember, did not um, they didn't believe in that text. The prophet was preaching 600 years before Jesus' time, and ironically, just before the deportation of the people into Babylon. And so, we find this idea of living water. What is this? Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. There it is, as clear as the narrative here in John 4. 
God is the source of life and the only source of life that can satisfy. So Jesus points out to this woman the same thing that Jeremiah preached to the nation of Israel. Don't look for satisfaction anywhere else. These, those things that you create cannot hold water. They cannot satisfy you. Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have, sa- for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Living water is God. He is the source of living water. And finally, in John chapter 7, the same author that we've been in all morning, John chapter 7, he tells us what living water is. So I don't know who's going to preach this in a couple weeks, but we'll fast forward, look at John 7, verses 37 and 30, through 39. Jesus is at a feast. Verse 37, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John interprets this for us and puts it in verse 39. Now he said, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those whom believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So living water, specifically, is the gift that we receive from Jesus of God himself. The indwelling Holy Spirit that's given to those who believe in Jesus, which springs up into a fountain of life. Question number two that we asked, what is worship in spirit and in truth? Worshiping God is to be both in spirit and truth, but what exactly does that mean? If, you're, if you've been in church for any number of years or any length of time, we get used to a lot of these types of verses or sayings, and we say, yep, amen, worship God in spirit and in truth. But what exactly does that mean? Explain that um, to someone who doesn't know that. We did this a little bit in our small group last night, um, and we had, we had a great time, and it was helpful for us. Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So God's spiritual nature means, it's not necessarily a reference to the Holy Spirit, but that God is spirit. His nature is um, life-giving. Without spirit, a person is dead. Since God is spirit, he is alive. He is the living God that is therefore the source of living water. So now we've come full circle. Said differently, worship must be accurate and authentic, spirit and truth. Worship must be both right and real. Worship must be rock solid in its truth and alive in its spirit. So Jesus explains, here's how these ideas are connected. He explains that the dead worship of the Pharisees, flashback to John chapter 3 as Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus, this dead worship of the Pharisees, that's, they've got the truth, but it's without humble, authentic dependence on God. It's without spirit. It is inadequate. And an authentic worship that's dependent on the wrong thing, like an idol or a sacrament or 
serial relationships, this woman who's got all these marriages and she's seeking um, to protect her image by staying away from the other ladies in the morning. Her worship that's authentic but directed at the wrong thing is also inadequate. Our worship must be alive and focused on Christ. So God is, is seeking people like Nicodemus who has truth to worship. He's seeking people like Nicodemus to worship in spirit. All his understanding of Scripture is worthless when it's dead unbelief. Nicodemus needs authentic belief that is alive. And God is seeking people like this woman to worship in truth. Her heartfelt pursuit of acceptance in serial relationships and her avoidance of shame is ultimately unfulfilling to her. She cannot be satisfied. She needs a living faith in God's unique ability to satiate her. And God is seeking people like you and like me who will trust him alone to satisfy our, our needs. So, as we wrap up, what is quenching our thirst? Because we all thirst. And when we're thirsty, we drink. And we often look for our thirsts to be quenched in relationships and ego and materialism and money, entertainment between Netflix and social media feeds. And we satiate our deepest longings with our careers, our status, politics. And, and we, are, we are really good at manufacturing other things to find satisfaction in. Authentic worship, as Jesus said, must be in spirit, alive, and truth, with God as the object. And only then are we, like this woman, like she's about to see, only then are we able to be ultimately satisfied. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your ultimate satisfaction that you give to us the gift of the Holy Spirit that you give to people who believe. I pray for this church that we would be people who do not seek satisfaction anywhere other than you. That we would drink at the fountain that you give and nothing else. Show us that. Bring those dark corners of our heart and our life to light so that we can see and forsake those things that we try to quench our thirst with. And may you receive all the praise and the glory for what you're doing in this church and in our lives as individuals in this family. We love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.